Bible reading today is Matthew 8, chapter 23 to 27. Jesus comes the storm. Then he got into the boat and his disciples followed him. Without warning, a furious storm came up on the lake. So the waves swept over the boat. But Jesus was sleeping. The disciples went and woke him up, saying, Lord, save us. We're going to drown. He replied, you of little faith, why are you so afraid? Then he got up and rebuked the wind and the waves, and it was completely calm. The men were amazed and asked, what kind of man is this? Even the winds and the waves obey him. Well, friends, I've brought you out here overlooking the ocean this morning, the mighty Pacific Ocean this morning to help illustrate my central theme of the need to be fearless. Fearlessness is my theme today. Now the sea or the ocean has always been a source of terror for we land mammals, hasn't it? I know many of you are, are very keen surfers here or have grown up next to the beach. I've spent a few years by the beach, but nevertheless, uh, the ocean, the sea has always contained a sense of dread or fear for we land-loving human beings. See, without a flotation device, in only a couple of metres of water, we are completely out of our depth. We are completely at the mercy of the deep blue abyss and, in fact, of whatever else happens to be uh, lurking out there at the time, of course. It's not necessarily, of course, that being fearful in that situation is unreasonable. It's quite reasonable, in fact, to be fearful when we're out in the midst, out of our natural environment at the mercy of the sea and whatever happens to be lurking down there. In fact, I remember one, one particular occasion a few years ago very clearly burnt into my mind of a tremendous uh, fearfulness that gripped me. I was a few hundred metres offshore on my stand-up paddleboard and I was paddling out towards where a flock of seagulls were flapping about on the surface there, messing with something, doing something. I thought that would be interesting. I'll go out and check it out. And as I'm paddling out, a pointy grey head jumped out of the water and tried to grab hold of one of those seagulls. Well, you can imagine I very quickly turned around and beat a hasty retreat lest that pointy grey head tried to grab hold of me. Fear isn't unreasonable at times. It's quite a natural response. It's quite a healthy response to dangerous situations, isn't it? But the trouble is fear can also at times be irrational. We can also sometimes have an irrational fear. When fear stops us from doing what we need to do, when fear stops us from living a healthy, balanced life, when fear prevents us from being all we can be in Christ, when fear stops us from living life to the full that God wants us to, then we must identify that fear. We must identify the source of that fear. We've got to deal with it and we must overcome it. And tragically, friends, this morning, I think we've become a very fearful people of late, I must say. I think we as a people, as a nation and as, the, as a world have become extraordinarily fearful. The more and more I think on it, the more I dwell on it, the more I see that it is in fact fear that is the primary emotion in our society today. It is the driving emotion of, of what drives us as individuals and as a society. I think we as individuals and governments, we've become 
irrationally fearful of COVID over and above every other possible life-threatening situation that we as humans might face. You'd think that we were in the midst of some sort of Hollywood-style zombie apocalypse, wouldn't you, given some of the news reports that we get. We've become, we've become so incredibly fearful of this one virus that it is, like being out at sea, healthy to have a, a particular fear of, but, but not in the sense that we allow it to overcome everything else, that we allow it to dominate our lives. We see these media reports, don't we? And the media aren't stupid. They know what sells. They know what drives their advertising. They know which way the wind is blowing. They know people are fearful. And so it's in their best interest, isn't it, to gin up hysteria. And so night after night after night, we see these catastrophic stories of those very few occasions when young people have succumbed to this virus. Day after day, they, they push this narrative of this something to be so very fearful of, to, to not leave your house, to dominate our thoughts and our emotions. It's, it's not healthy, it's, it's irrational. Of course, they love rolling out so-called experts that really it turns out aren't that expert at all, that have in fact made some pretty wildly inaccurate predictions in these past 18 months. Remember two weeks to flatten the curve? And of course, the poor old politicians who I think go into politics with a very genuine desire to, to serve the public. They too sort of sense which way the wind is blowing. They, they too see the media reports. They too sense that the electorate is, is fearful and those, they therefore feel the need to respond. They therefore feel the need to respond to the people's desire to be, to be safe. They therefore put in place policies, public policies that have actually been very damaging to us as individuals and as a society, I believe. Now, of course, they need to be responsible. Of course, they need to do something. But this desire for the government to do something, to keep us safe, this attitude of safetyism, has meant that they've done so to the exclusion of all other possible things that might harm us as both individuals and, and as a society. They've done so without any sort of cost-benefit analysis for the holistic well-being, for the holistic flourishing of we as a society. So it's caused me a little bit of concern and I want to just speak into it and to offer an alternative today to this fearfulness that seems to have taken hold of our society to such an extent that we seem unable to, to focus on much else, that we seem unable to truly go and to live the abundant resurrection life that Christ has in store for us. This morning I want to address this safetyism that has set up camp in our in the Australian in the Australian mindset. In doing so, I want to revisit a, a wonderful book that I read a, a number of years ago by Max Licardo. I'm sure many of you are familiar with Max Licardo's work. It's actually called Fearless. I was actually attracted to the book because of its front cover. It shows a picture of a boy jumping off the end of a pier with gay abandon. And I looked at that photo and I thought, that's the sort of life I want to live. That's the sort of fearless life that I want. So I actually purchased the book without knowing much else about it. And what I discovered on the inside was that it was a powerful, in-depth illustration of the fearlessness 
that we can have when we surrender our lives to Christ. Max Licardo opens the book with a famous story, our famous story that we heard read today from Matthew's Gospel of Jesus calming the storm, of a, of a very famous story of a bunch of men being very, very fearful indeed. And indeed, not an irrational fear. Let's uh, pick up this opening chapter of the book Fearless by Max Licardo. He's a wonderful wordsmith. Why don't you follow me for a moment in joining in this story. He says, Fear, it seems, has taken up a hundred-year lease on the building next door and set up shop. Oversized and rude, fear is unwilling to share the heart with happiness. Happiness complies and leaves. Do you ever see the two together? Can one be happy and afraid at the same time? Clear thinking and afraid? Confident and afraid? Merciful and afraid? No. Fear is the big bully in the high school hallway, brash and loud and unproductive. For all the noise fear makes and the room that it takes, fear does little good. Fear never wrote a symphony or a poem, negotiated a peace treaty or cured a disease. Fear never pulled a family out of poverty or a country out of bigotry. Fear never saved a marriage or a business. Courage did that. Faith did that. People who refused to consult or cower to their timidities did that. But fear itself? Fear herds us into a prison and slams the doors. Wouldn't it be great if we could just walk out? Imagine your life wholly untouched by angst. What if faith, not fear, was the default position of to threats. If you could hover a fear magnet over your heart and extract every last shaving of dread, insecurity and doubt, what would remain? Envision a day, just one day, absent the dread of failure, rejection and calamity. Can you imagine a life with no fear? This is the possibility behind Jesus' question. Why are you afraid? He asks in verse 26. At first blush, we wonder if Jesus is serious. But Jesus doesn't smile. He's dead earnest. So are the men to whom he, so to other men to whom he asks the question. A storm has turned their Galilean dinner crews into a white-knuckled plunge. I love Max Licardo's wording here. Matthew remembers well the pouncing tempest and the bouncing boat with his careful use of his terminology. Not just any noun would do. He pulled the Greek thesaurus off the shelf and hunted for a descriptor that exploded like the waves across the bow. He bypassed common terms for spring shower or squall or cloud burst or downpour. He didn't, that didn't capture what he felt and saw that night. A rumbling earth, a quivering shoreline. He recalled more than winds and white caps. His finger followed the column of synonyms down until he landed on a word that worked. Ah, there it is. Seismos. A quake. A trembling eruption of sea and sky. A great seismos arose on the lake. The term still occupies a spot in our vernacular. A seismologist studies earthquakes. A seismograph measures them. 
And Matthew, along with the crew of recent recruits, felt a seismos that shook them to the core. He used, the word, he used that word on only two other occasions. Once at Jesus' death when Calvary shook, and again at Jesus' resurrection when the graveyard tremored. Apparently the stilled storm shares equal billing in the trilogy of Jesus' great shake-ups, defeating sin on the cross, death at the tomb, and here silencing fear on the sea. Peter and John, seasoned sailors, struggle to keep down the sail, and Matthew, confirmed landlubber, struggles to keep down his breakfast. The storm is not what the tax collector bargained for. Don't Christ followers enjoy a calendar full of Caribbean cruises? No. This story sends the not so subtle and not too popular reminder, getting on board with Christ can mean getting soaked with Christ. Disciples can expect rough seas and stout winds. In the world you will, not might, may or could, you will have tribulation, says John 16:33. Christ followers contract malaria, bury children, and battle addictions, and as a result, face fears. It's not the absence of storms that sets us apart. It's whom we discover in the storm, an unstirred Christ. Jesus was sleeping, says verse 24. Mark's Gospel adds two curious details. Jesus was in the stern, asleep on a pillow. This was premeditated slumber. He didn't accidentally nod off. In full knowledge of the coming storm, Jesus decided it was siesta time. And he crawled into a corner, put his head on the pillow and drifted into dreamland. Matthew and Mark record their responses as three staccato Greek pronouncements and one question. The pronouncements, Lord, save, dying. And the question, teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? They do not ask about Jesus' strength. Can you still the storm? Or his knowledge, are you aware of the storm? Or his know-how, do you have any experience with storms? But rather they raise doubts about Jesus' character. Do you not care? Fear does this. Fear corrodes our confidence in God's graciousness, in His goodness. We begin to wonder if love lives in heaven, if God can sleep in our storms, if His eyes stay shut while our eyes grow wide, if He permits storms after we get in His boat, does He care? Fear unleashes a swarm of doubts, anger stirring doubts. And it turns us into control freaks. Do something about the storm is the implicit demand of this question. Fix it or, 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 or else. Fear at its center is a perceived loss of control. When life spins wildly, we grab for a component of life that we can manage. Our diet, the tidiness of our house, the armrest of a plane, or in many cases, people. The more insecure we feel, the meaner we become. We growl and bare our fangs. Why? Because we are bad? In part, 
but also because we feel cornered. Martin Niemöller documents an extreme example of this. He was a German pastor who took a heroic stand against Adolf Hitler. When he first met the dictator in 1933, Niemöller stood at the back of the room and listened. Later, when his wife asked him what he'd learned, he said, I discovered that her Hitler is a terribly frightened man. Fear releases the tyrant within. It also deadens our recall. The disciples had reason to trust Jesus. By now they'd seen him healing all kinds of diseases among the people. Shouldn't someone mention Jesus' track record or review his resume? Do they remember the accomplishments of Christ? Well, they may not. Fear creates a form of spiritual amnesia. I love the way Licardo says that. Fear creates a form of spiritual amnesia. It dulls our miracle memory. What a great turn of phrase. It dulls our miracle memory. It makes us forget what Jesus has done and how good God is. When fear shapes our lives, safety becomes our God. Safety becomes our God. That is so good. When safety becomes our God, we worship the risk-free life. Amen. That's so true. Can the safety lover do anything great? Can the risk averse accomplish noble deeds for God, for others? No. The fear-filled cannot love deeply, for love is risky. Indeed it is. They cannot give to the poor because benevolence has no guarantee of return. The fear-filled cannot dream wildly. What if their dreams splutter and fall from the sky? The worship of safety emasculates greatness. Wonderful wording from Max Licata. The worship of safety emasculates greatness. No wonder Jesus wages such a war against fear. His most common command emerges from the fear not genre. The Gospels list some 125 Christ-issued imperatives. Of these, 21 urges to be not afraid or to not fear or to have courage or take heart or be of good cheer. The second most common command to love God and neighbour appears on only eight occasions. If quantity is any indicator, Jesus takes our fears seriously. The one statement he made more than any other was this, don't be afraid. Jesus doesn't want you to live in a state of fear, and nor do you. You've never made statements like these, have you? My phobias put such a spring in my step. I'd rather be a rotten parent, I'd, or rather I'd, I'd be a rotten parent were it not for my hypochondria. Thank God for my pessimism. I've been such a better person since I lost hope. My doctor says if I don't begin fretting, I will lose my health. We've learned the high cost of fear. Jesus' question is a good one. He lifts his head from the pillow, steps out from the stern into the storm and asks, Why are you so fearful? Oh, you of little faith, in verse 26. To be clear, fear serves a healthy function. It is the canary in the coal mine. 
warning of potential danger. A dose of fright can keep a child from running across a busy road or an adult from smoking a packet of cigarettes. Fear is the appropriate reaction to a burning building or a growling dog. Fear itself is not a sin, but it can lead to sin. If we medicate fear with angry outbursts, drinking binges, sullen withdrawals, self-starvation or vice-like control, we exclude God from the solution and exacerbate the problem. We subject ourselves to a position of fear, allowing anxiety to dominate and define our lives. Joy-sapping worries, day-numbing dread, repeated bouts of insecurity that petrify and paralyze us. Hysteria is not from God, for God has not given us a spirit of fear, says 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 7. Fear will always knock on the door. Just don't invite it in for dinner. And for heaven's sake, don't offer it a bed for the night. Wonderfully powerful words from Max Licardo, I think you'll agree. Friends, it turns out that the dangers of this life are not as necessarily life-threatening as we imagine them to be in our head. Even a worst case scenario, like a terrible storm like that, or indeed a, a pandemic, through it all, Jesus has a funny habit of turning up, of showing up and, and transforming that situation. It's natural to fear, no matter how strong your faith, but let's not allow ourselves to be defined or to be controlled by fear. Let's remember, that no matter what occurs in this earthly life, no matter what occurs in this stormy world, let's remember that Jesus, the very Word of God, is still with us. He has conquered death itself. And He has the authority to control even the wind and the waves. Then surely a virus is no match for Him no matter how deadly it may indeed be. Let me leave you with a quote that in fact Carol shared in our morning prayer uh, once this week uh, at 9.30 via Zoom by an author by the name of Elizabeth Elliot. Uh, in her book called Through the Gates of Splendor, she writes this, and I think it's applicable to this situation about living a life of fearlessness and being able to find our rest in God. She writes this, I will find rest nowhere but in His will. And that will is infinitely, immeasurably, unspeakably beyond my largest notions of what He is up to. I love that. Unspeakably beyond even our largest notions of what we think God is up to. God is beyond even that. Praise God. Friends, I reckon this perspective changes everything for us. We will go through trials, we will go through storms in this life. But as followers of Jesus, we live in hope, not fear. So church, can I encourage us in this new season as the world begins to open up, to let's not be taken captive by fear, 
but by hope, hope in Christ. Let's make sure that our lives are confident, life-giving, life-affirming, life-living witnesses to the boundless depths of God's provision for each and every one of us. Let's jump out into the deep like that little boy on the cover of that book. Let's leap out into life knowing that with Jesus on board, even the most seismic storm or even indeed the most insidious virus need not cause us to fear. Amen. A prayer for our nation and our world. May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with us all. As much of our world is filled with sadness and strife, let's ask for God's favour on our land as we use the acronym GRACE as a guide to pray for a nation that we might be godly, realising our freedom and strength ultimately always and only come from our sovereign God. Righteous, that we might be a holy people, not ashamed to have goals of holiness kindness and goodness in our personal, family and corporate lives. Active in good works, realising the needs of our world are great and with the abundant blessings we have, we share generously with those in our world who are hungry, hurting and homeless. Christ-like, may we as a nation and people be like Jesus, strong but compassionate, helpful and humble, powerful but a servant, evangelistic, not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, and brave to share it in our lives and words, so that all the world will know the peace that can only come through Jesus. As we serve you each day, Lord Jesus, make us mindful of your grace, and help us to be grace-filled witnesses to our world. Amen. <laughs>